Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. All right. Well, welcome, everyone. Today we have with us Heather Miller, who I know from the Scholar community. And Heather, you worked uh, at EPFL, did your postdoc there, is that right? PhD, uh, did my PhD there. PhD, okay, cool. <laughs> and so you've been doing, uh, you've done a lot of Scala stuff, and now you're at CMU as a professor there. Carnegie Mellon. Yeah, Carnegie Mellon, thank you. Mm-hmm. And uh, and doing computer science stuff and doing some really fascinating research around distributed systems, which we will get into. Mm-hmm. But and um, also a lot of interesting functional stuff. So yeah, functional wanna... programming, composability. Yes, lots of lots of great stuff. But um, welcome, thanks for joining us, Heather. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for having me, and thanks for uh, like. I mean, you know, I, I think that like. I'm just like randomly difficult to reach sometimes. I don't know. I've been sort of checked out on personal stuff. Just had yeah. a kid. So you were like rather persistent in bugging me. So thank you. <laughs> thank you for inviting me and thank you for like not giving up. Yeah. Oh, of course. Well, we, we really did want to have you on to chat about all sorts of fun stuff. We had uh, Jonas Bonaire on a while cool. back and talked to, that was a really great mm-hmm. conversation about distributed systems, but, mm-hmm. um, but, want to get your your whole take on that but before yeah. we go there um what was your phd um what did you study with uh, epfl and scala yeah so um so my my phd was actually focusing on a lot of issues surrounding distribution and the scala scala in general like okay how do we make this easier because it's generally just in some in, in some cases it just wasn't possible <laughs> um yeah. just based on like you know, dumb little things that could be viewed as bugs, right? But like that, you know, the, the compiler emitted, you know, um, references to things that would fail at serialization time, and therefore, like you couldn't ser- you couldn't distribute some object that you would, you know, is totally innocuous. It's extends serializable or whatever. Like it, it looks fine, right? And so this is kind of. And as soon as you this, try to pass it over the wire and use it, it doesn't work. Yeah, and it, it, you just get runtime exceptions all over the place. And I mean, uh, and this had to do with kind of how the Scala compiler encoded. Uh, you know, class class instances and stuff like this, right? Um, when you know, yeah. like when it got translated onto the JVM. So, whatever. The the point here is that you know this was just a bug that got fixed, right? But from this, there's like a, a lot of a lot of issues that kind of popped up. And and actually, Matei Zaharia, when he was uh, just a PhD student at Berkeley, building Spark by himself quietly <laughs> in an <laughs> office, he was sending me emails all the time, like, uh, how does this? I can't. Like this doesn't work. Like, shouldn't this work, right? And I'm like, you're uh, right. That seems reasonable, you know. Yeah. And then from there, um, there's a bunch of sort of questions that you know became sort of the basis of my thesis. And some of them, I mean, you know, so the whole like idea of generating serializations uh, code statically, uh, and then you know having like some runtime support when needed, but generally to try to do it all statically, um, that was like one of the first things that I did. And then. Um, then that after was, that, you pickle, uh, pickle, that was pickling? the pickling library. And then, yeah. then there became like 8,000 libraries, yeah. um, which, you know, there should be 8,000 libraries because there's so many subtly different ways to do things. Right. And not every way is right. Isn't um, it wild that it's 2021 and serialization of data is still such a hard problem? Yeah, generally. no. Absolutely. Well, like, it seems wild that we, here we are, 2021, and we're still struggling to get serialization. And, well, I mean, gRPC, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's been nice. Yeah, um, Protobus. What do you, what's your yeah. take on Protobus? Uh, I mean, you know, they have largely so, so pr- prior to them, right? People were just serializing objects 
um, and in sort of like with some associated schema as like JSON or something, right? As like the the format that you use to exchange between different uh, objects between different like programming languages or um, programs in general, right? Um, and protobufs make it a lot more, I don't know, like, you know, an encapsulated problem. Like protocol buff, right. protocol buffers handle the case of, you know, how do I like put my object into a certain shape that any other programming language can understand, right? Yeah. Um, Having an independent IDL gives us some benefits that we don't get if we're kind of doing the serialization on a language specific. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it, it also kind of uh, having the IDL in the middle also kind of cause, because, you know, let's just say that there is like, like an object or like a class or something that you want to, you know, take from Java to Python. There's all kinds of like subtle differences in how fields can be, uh, you know, declared. Right, different data models, different representations of data. Yeah, but yeah. Generally class, like the notion of a class is the same, but there's a whole bunch of differences. Right. And so the proto, the ID, ID, the sort of, the common IDL uh, makes it, you know, like kind of smooths over a shared, a shared model or something that. Yeah, that, right. It makes us like yeah. agree on something in between different sort of, you know, universes of, of yeah. like modeling data. Um, so, yeah, and I, mean, I guess it's interesting that they built into the that idea the the appendability of fields. Um, yeah. Which is the schema hmm. evolution aspect, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, just recognizing that, hey, schemas change and we sure. <laughs> need to uh, have support for that. Did you happen to see, it's sometime in the last year or so, Brian Getz had a video where he was explaining how um, the the vul security vulnerabilities of Java serialization. Oh, I didn't see that video, but I've seen, okay, something in the you last year, I've not seen that issue. video. But, but I have seen a lot about this issue in general. Oh, tell us. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's just like, uh, you know, there's been so many like exploits and things, you know, that are at their root, some some JVM like runtime serialization issue where, you know, you can you can kind of change and affect payloads based on like some runtime bug, right? Um, I mean, I, I'm not I'm not going to pretend like I know exactly what his talk was about, but this general like issue is pretty, it's like, you know, because everybody, you know, uses the... Um, the JVM, right. As like in JVM serialization, uh, you know, everybody has this problem who uses the JVM and uses JVM serialization. Right. Um, so you need to like update the whole virtual machine and, you know, that's obviously not easy. Um, but I think and then, the basic issue was that the fact that you could serialize behavior as well as data. Um, and then, and then you could spoof, you know, you could you could replace a method, a serialized method with your own thing. And, huh. that's, and then that when that method gets called. Yeah, then. that's what he was talking about. And and I was just kind of amazed that, oh, this has been in since Java 1. Mm -hmm. And we're only now, and it's like a severe, you know, sounds like a pretty severe uh, issue. And we're only now, because that's oh, one of the benefits of records. Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and this is actually... Um, Hilariously, uh, so I'm not up to date on these things, so I'm gonna give you like a snapshot from a few years ago. Um, but when they were introducing lambdas into Java, they were like, "Ah, let's not worry about serializing them, right?" Um, <laughs> that seemed because you know because and then this problem. However, this problem has been a problem since before that anyway, right? Yeah. <laughs> Which I thought would yeah. Do we need to serialize anything, anything other than data? Is that I mean maybe well, in distributed systems? I think systems that's the point of records is that you only serialize data and it's just and protobufs down. you only serialize data right then. right you know and it's like why would you want to 
send behavior over the wire. That's us. No, because, well, I mean, you know, there's there's a lot of reasons why you might want to send behavior over the wire. People in the databases community have, have played with this idea for a long time because, you know, you got a lot of data that you don't want to move. So why don't you just, and, and the functionality is stupid and small. Instead of moving so, your data, move your move behavior function, yeah, to yeah. the data. Instead of yeah, moving exactly. your data to the behavior, move your behavior to the data. Exactly. Right. I mean, yeah, interesting. But if you do that, you have to really look at security and make sure true. it's true. True, but I feel like live in a highly constrained like universe and it's like all you have is like SQL or something. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and you don't have like a general purpose language or whatever, like there's a lot less to worry about. Uh but I mean, you know, there's still things to worry about. Like you could delete all the records, you know. <laughs> um, but you know, <laughs> uh people have played with this idea over the years, um, and, and multiple communities. Uh yeah. I guess you can think of Spark as doing that, right? Um, because, you know, you leave all of the data on each of the machines in memory and then, you know, you all the code is compiled together, but ultimately you're like sending um, like, hey, invoke this, invoke this, uh, you know, create an instance of this class, invoke this function uh, on the data that you have on the data shard you have on your machine, right? And so that's, yeah. you're not actually sending the, like you're not actually sending the function over the wire, you're sending a jar over the wire to all the different machines, right? And then they all have the same jars, um, but, you know, it's still kind of the same concept where, you know, rather than pumping all the data through one machine and, you know, just calculating the average, right? Which is stupid. You calculate the average on, you know, remote machines and yeah, then you and then aggregate it. And yeah, yeah so it's, it's, it's kind of that, right? Um, yeah. I mean, conceptually, it's that. Yeah. So your website said that you, like your I don't know, research orientation is around rethinking how distributed systems work. Uh, yeah, that's like the most broad statement possible, I think. <laughs> like, I mean, like you are, you are, you are quoting me, so it's, I'm not pointing at you saying this. <laughs> and so I can say like, we can zoom in and qualify that statement a little bit. Um, uh -huh. So we do a bunch of things and, and a lot of the focus of the work that we do is, is on composition. And so, um, there's one um, area of work that we've been doing for a little while now. It's, it's you know, obviously since I'm a professor now, uh, I work with PhD students and, you know, it's really like their baby and I'm kind of just like helping, helping direct it along. Right. But keeping the money flowing. <laughs> I, you know, un unfortunately that's, I, I think you talk to me about how academia works and I will rant for like an hour and a half, but, <laughs> but, um, but like, like just talking, let's focus on the research for now. Yeah. Um, he's so, you know, you should know his name. His name is Matthew Wiedner. Um, he, he's, so he's a PhD student at CMU um, and he works in my research group and he's been working on um, basically the, 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 the problem of trying to ensure that, um, you know, gar nice guarantees that you want in a distributed context uh, can compose and that you, so you can use these, these, these things that have these nice properties um, like you can in any sort of single machine program. So the, the example would be um, like CRDTs, right? Um, if you want to use CRDTs, uh, Wait, usually, what's a CRDT? Okay, I'll tell you what a CRDT is in a moment, but just for <laughs> okay. now, assume it's a data structure, okay? It's, it's a okay. data structure with some distributed systems niceties. Okay. Um, and, you know, the current state of the art is that, you know, well, I have to use the, an implementation of one of these things out of a database, and I can't really do anything like with it, right? I can't like create like a new class definition that, you know, also has nice um, distributed systems properties and has like other 
uh, CRDTs, which are data structures, like as fields, and then expect all of those properties to compose nicely in whatever I actually instantiate and play with, right? Um, so I don't know if that makes sense. Um, but the point here is that you can't use them like regular data structures. Uh, they, they have these, so the, the properties that I'm talking about are, you know, like eventual consistency. So we want, you know, if we have replicas of this data structure on different machines um, and we want to just use it like it's any other data structure, um, you know, the way that you construct them and, and you put the pieces together, you can't do it the same way that you can when you like create like your own data structure uh, and you use other data structures as fields and things. It, it, it sort of everything breaks down when you start trying to like uh, build up a composite object that has has like these nice distributed systems properties. It's like um, the systems aren't aware of of the concept of eventual consistency. And so you right. can't compose them when you're running on a single machine. You, you don't even have to worry about that. It's always concept. consistent. It's always consistent. Yeah, exactly. But, but yeah, as soon as you go into the distributed space, you, there is the reality of eventual consistency, but that is not expressed through the programming model in any way. Right. Exactly. Um, and so like, let's just say, so here's a, like a stupid example, right? Like since the world's easiest, like, uh, uh, eventually consistent data structure is like a counter um you know let you know let's say that we're building a web app and you know we want uh it's a collaborative web app and we want you know all three of us have a laptop or a smartphone or something and we want to be able to like upvote the counter uh and you know all see the same result so like james can update up, up update the counter twice and bruce once and me once right and then we should all see four right um and the way that people would implement that, like right now, um, like let's say that, okay, here, here, you guys have the task of doing this. You tend to focus a lot like on RPC calls and like, how do I connect to these things? And then like, you know, and how do I ensure that we all have to centralize this? it into a single database, a single node, a single, you know, if all yeah. of us are, and then use locks on that database, you know, and all right. that. But you're focusing on all these work. aspects of it really. And, and, you know, that's okay, fine. I'm glad that you know about those things. Congratulations. Um, it's, it's a rather common pattern. And why do you have to go through all that crap and also, you know, do it wrong in some cases, because maybe, you know, you know, things about distributed systems, but like your, however you decide to lock things is bad. Right. And it slows everything down. Right. <laughs> like, right. So you don't want that. Like, let's say you go distributed. One of your options is to then have a centralized coordinator. Right. To, right. And then have handle... everything locking through that. That's right. <laughs> which is, you know, you, basically your centralized coordinator is, is fundamentally serializing everything. And you don't need to do that because it's just, plus ones, you can always just aggregate them in any order that they come in, right? Like it's not required to have somebody like force a serialization order, right? Yeah. Anyway, um, you know, so but CRDTs, this is, how do we do it? Yeah. So CRDTs, so basically uh, CRDTs, uh, they are not a concept that I that I invented or anything. They're something that have been around for a little while. Since and it's an acronym for what? Uh, Conflict-free replicated data types. C. C. Uh, conflict free just uh yeah well, where, ignore, where's ig the f ignore the f oh yeah okay yeah oh, yeah sorry right. sorry so okay. yeah conflict free is one word just okay. imagine replicated data type uh okay yeah. i didn't name them don't blame me either you know <laughs> okay no just trying to be clear <laughs> um yeah i mean you can all just call them replicated data types but the the okay. the point is that you know um the, by design uh you should be able to have um you know, every basically these things should be able to be replicable, uh, replicable. I don't know whatever whatever that word is. Uh, you should be able to replicate these things, and you you know everybody who is using them and updating them, you update your replica replica locally, uh, and then 
when you know your updates will eventually you know be merged on other people's replicas. So in the in the counter scenario, I have a counter, uh, James's counter, Bruce's counter, and you all you know everybody just kind of clicks one, like plus one whenever you feel like it. Um, and then my updates will eventually get to yours and then be merged. And you know they, they all kind of come in whenever they come in and get merged, and then we all eventually see the same state. Um, this is obviously easy for a counter, but there are other situations that are not easy. It's like, easy for a counter because yeah. it's uh, com commutative or something? Yes, exactly. It's commutative, yeah. right? But then, you know, um, not everything is only commutative. So think about like, uh, you know, uh, adding d division and, and, and like subtraction and stuff to it, right? So if you, yeah. if you have like an order of operations for like a, a little, like computing an average, for example, <laughs> right? Um, and so things have to happen in a certain order. Um, and sort of the, the, the TLDR of a recent paper that we, we had published at ICFP, which is the International Conference on Functional Programming, um, it's this notion of, I'm not going to use all the terminology from the paper because it's mathy. Um, I'm just going to give like a gist of it. The point, the point is that, you know, you can define a so-called um, like arbitration order. So like, you know, rules for what to, uh, what to apply first, you know. Uh, so in the case of of like subtraction and multiplication and, and and you know you can kind of like specify an order of operations um, and you know the, each of the individual replicas will know you know what this arbitration order is. So if an update, you know if you get like a subtraction operation before like a, an addition one or whatever, like it, it should know how to reorder them in the right order so that you know you get the correct result. Um, and so this and this, this is this, similar to another CRDT. So you mentioned like the counter example, um, but then there's another CRDT which is um, something where it knows the the directionality of states that it can go through. So oh, yeah. so Aka uses this for cluster um, cluster state. So a node can't go from starting to to down it can only go from starting to started or something like that yeah like it knows the order down, in which, down. yeah and so because it knows because the crdt defines this order that things can happen in it as the resolution is happening it knows which event events it can discard or whatever mm. because they yeah. would it knows that they came out of <laughs> order or what may have come out of order and so then it knows what it can discard so in our case, we don't discard. We just well, kind of wait because we know that there must be like reassemble a, into the right order or something. Yeah, we 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 know that something we're waiting for something, and so then we, when it, when it arrives, then we'll reassemble everything and then you know do the computation. Cool. Um, but, but the point is that this is like a general like this. So in the case of like uh, you know Aka's like cluster status situation, um, that's one application of it. The other application is just like regular order of operations and multiplication and, you know, subtraction and division and whatever. But right. like the point is that, you know, you can kind of have this, this sort of arbitration order for like a lot of different applications. Um, it's not like, you know, and, and this is, you know, and you would typically, when you create your data structure, you'd want to kind of specify what this is because ideally, you know what it should be. And the person who is like downstream, just using your data structure knows that something smart supposed to happen, but they shouldn't have to, to like implement that themselves, right? And so um, the key idea here is basically encoding this this so-called arbitration order. And the paper is about, you know, the, the, it's about semi-direct products and composing operations and whatever. It's like, 
a bunch of jargon. Uh, and I mean, if you like, if you, if you like functional programming papers, absolutely by, by all means go read it. But it, I just want to be clear that this is not something that like, you know, if you, if you're into functional programming and you're like writing web apps and you know, you've taken some tutorials, it's, this is not going to be accessible at all. I promise. Um, so what I clear, think is- is so cool about this though is that one of the things I love about functional programming is that there is this whole mathematical foundation to it that makes it work. Yes. And uh, like monads, like very mathematical foundation to it. But we don't have to understand the no, math not at all. in order to get use out of monads, but we certainly benefit that monads are based on uh, it's algebraic reassuring. foundation. It's reassuring. Right. Like you go, this you don't work. have to know it. Like, yeah, yeah, but then it makes it the, the explaining of it is challenging because <laughs> because so many people come from the math background and they want to explain it mathematically. Yeah, I don't. And it's going to lose everybody. I don't want to explain the math background. I want to explain the application, right? And I want to be like, hey, there is a math background. Don't worry about it. If you really want to worry about it, go read the paper. It's a mathy paper, yeah. you know. <laughs> um, but, but I think that but the, like, you don't even know that were- stuff. This is what's super cool that you're doing is that you're creating these defining and and um, creating these mathematical foundations for distributed systems, mm-hmm. and so that now whether it's CRDTs or other things we discover, they will be based on math and give us reliable ways to compose Put things together. Yeah, yeah. So let me back off a little because of what you were talking about. I, I was thinking, well, like the counter, if we were all sitting at the same computer and pushing the counter button, this it's wouldn't like, be a problem. oh, it happens. Just do it right now. Yeah. But then exactly. when we're separated, it becomes a stream of events. Exactly. It's remove events that have to be submitted over the wire and, you know, they could come, you know, at any time and, and you know, yeah. And so, it also seems like you can, using math, you can say, <laughs> oh, we can we can figure out things about these events, like maybe some of them we can ignore. For with example. Some yeah. With some data yeah, structure. Yeah. Some, okay. Right. So that's, I mean, that, so that's, uh, that's the case of the ACA kind of cluster um, status CRDT, I guess, that, that, that James was talking about, which is, you know, we know that you can't get to the state you know, uh, from state A to state D without going through BC, right? And so we can like assume we got through BC and we jump over to D, right? Or um, wait until you get the thing that to, if, yeah. If and so in our case, we wait. Um, and uh, so this kind of a math analysis of it could allow you to compose distributed components. Well, exactly. So the idea is, um, if I can encode like how these things can be, should be combined right, into, like, the data definition or in sort of, like, the implementation of the CRDT, um, I should be able to just pick that thing up and use it with some, you know, th- yeah, I should be able to use these, like, this data structure with some other data structure, um, and, you know, together I can figure out the correct arbitration um, of, of messages. So, like, I can use these things as fields um, and then not have to worry about, uh, you know, like, oh, you know, all of the, the guarantees are now invalid because I've put these things together somehow, or I've added a new operation or something to it. And therefore it's all, I have to redesign this thing from scratch and improve all the properties about it again. Um, you don't have to do that with this. So I guess the point is like, you know, I like wave my hands, I'm like math, you know, um, but that <laughs> math, math means that like you can use this distributed data structure in the same way that you use not distributed data structures. 
Um, and you know, you can just have like a library of these data structures. The weird part about it is that there's like some networking code that has to exist in order to send messages places. So that's what makes the library awkward. Um, but other than that, like the way that you use it, you can just like add, add functions to it. Right. And it has this arbitration order. Uh, and so you don't have to like rediscover all of the ways that things can be combined and how they could go wrong because this, this mathy arbitration order thing underlies it all. Um, and you know, you kind of like always fall back to that. So I, I don't know if that makes sense. Like I'm trying to, trying yeah. to like give an intuitive description of this yes. and like why it matters. Yeah. Ultimately it's so that we can compose distributed pieces together mm-hmm. and, yeah. and in, a, in a reliable way. Right. That's cause that's the kind of my, the way I'm coming at functional programming. It keep this idea of composition seems to be front and center to me. It's like, yeah, that's why we're doing all this. So we can take these little reliable pieces and compose them together into big reliable pieces. Right. Yep. And, and you're trying thing, to do that for distributed systems. You're trying to yeah, apply for that. Properties, for distri- I, guess, I guess you could say uh, for properties of distributed systems. I mean, mm-hmm. ultimately, the, you know, I, I don't want to claim that like the things that we're doing, it's like some it's like we're we're like making zookeepers that are composable or something like that's like 18,000 levels higher than we're working yeah, um yeah. you know we're working on like the data structures and we're mm-hmm. you know for you example the foundations there before, yeah. and then we can build abstractions on top mm-hmm. of those that yeah. are a better the foundations and how to put them together right yeah. and so we're focusing right now on the data um and ways to you know compose the functions on the data right um and uh you know we already so this sounds all weird and abstract, but um, the ways in which it's like actually like usable and, you know, kind of cool right this minute is that um, it lets you build uh, like collaborative web applications uh, with just like, you know, a library of data structures. So it's like, here, I'm going to take out, uh, I'm going to get like a register or something. I'm going to make something out of this. Right. Um, And uh, we, we have a bunch of, so one thing, one thing that's cool about working at a university is that there's a bunch of students around. And so that's, it's a good, good like you know this person knows a reasonable amount of things like she's a senior in in computer science she's like she's worked at a whole bunch of companies for for internships she like knows what she's doing um but she's terrified of like building collaborative web applications would it be hard for her to build a collaborative web application in like a couple of days just like using these distributed data structures like you pluck out of a library like any other collections mm-hmm. library and i mean we have a bunch of applications that we built that are like would typically be very difficult like um collaborative like like whiteboard drawing applications or like you know the of course the the to-do list thing but we, yeah. it, it, the text editors and all kinds of stuff that we've built just like in a day or two um that have all of these properties that are really nice um, and you don't get into weird inconsistent states at all. Um, and you just have like undergrads doing it because, you know, it's, it's just like, I'm going to take, you know, uh, like this, this collaborative data structure you know, out of this library and use it and then put it into my, my front end. Right. Um, and that way you focus on, on, on that, you focus on the data when you're writing the code. Um, and you don't focus on like all the damn RPC calls and, you know, having to manage the state and all that crap, you know, or having a, to build your own centralized server or something. You just get the, the data structure out of the library and you use it and that's it. I mean, you, you know, you have to have, a, like I said, there's this networking layer. So you have to have some way to get messages fr- between your clients. Um, but, you know, you can just stand up a, a little Heroku instance, right? <laughs> and, and things can go through that Heroku instance as like sort of a, as a, as a beginning, beginner case, right? And you can actually um, 
Matthew. So this is Matthew's work, right? Uh, Matthew has also been doing this like completely decentralized without the need for a centralized server. And so he's been building like uh, collaborative applications and like putting them on this matrix, you know, like the matrix chat uh, application thingy that's fully decentralized, whatever. He's been putting like applications on that. And so by def- wow. by, by that, you know, by doing that, like the, the the little collaborative applications that he's building are also completely decentralized where there's no centralized server. Um, and so, you know, and the point is that you just, it's like a couple, it's, you know, it's a short, it's just like some data structures that you pluck out of library and use and it's collaborative. Um, he actually gave a talk at strange loop about it uh, a couple weeks ago. Oh, cool. I'll have to check Um, that one out. Yeah. So I was, I was, uh, uh, so the, the talk is billed for him and I, but I could not travel. (laughs) <laughs> I was hoping I was hoping to go, but the baby was was a little too needy, so he ended up giving the talk. But it says my name on there with him um, okay. because we did it. We were, you know, obviously this is joint work, right? But yeah. um, if you if you look up my name on Strangeloop, you'll find Matthew's talk, which is cool. okay. awesome. who you should be listening to. <laughs> so I have a slight change in direction. I think um, in terms of failure, like. Um, well, like, what do you think about the Erlang Elixir approach oh. of saying, oh, if a piece fails, just put it back up? And also sort of the Byzantine generals issue yes. and how you're dealing with that. You know, when we think of, we've been studying, um, you know. Uh, Scalazio. Sco- yeah, Scalazio stuff and everything. And it's like failure. Okay, it's an effect. We have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, that, how How is your research? So... Uh, that's a good question. This that specific project is not considering failure, um, mostly because you know we're we're talking about kind of like like right now we're doing like these little like we're doing like text editor apps and things like this where, um, you know, a failure typically doesn't happen, uh, and b like if failure does happen, it's just like a client goes offline for like ten minutes, you know, and then comes back online. <laughs> you know, it's the that's failure. It's not really failure because it comes back. Um, so. We're not really considering failure in that case. However, there's a whole bunch of other research where, where, I guess it's I guess it's a different kind of failure. It's 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 um, we're dealing with like fa- failures in much larger systems, and then trying to identify those before they get into production, uh, so that at least you can debug it before it brings down, uh, you know, an entire I don't know Spotify or something like this, right? Um, so. I guess there's a difference in use cases between mm-hmm. a collaborative system and like a transactional system. Right. Not being the only two types of systems that you could build, but transactional where it's like, oh, I just hit checkout. Like like that has a very different, uh, you have to approach failure to that very differently than you would in a collaborative type scenario. Right. Um, and so to to kind of like pivot over into that stuff. So this is Chris Mickeljohn's work. Um so everyone knows Chris, I hope. Um, I don't know Chris. You don't know Chris? Don't oh, he's like, he, everybody knows Chris. How do you not know Chris? I don't, maybe I, I do. Chris. This is a distributed <laughs> network issue, <laughs> right. I think. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so Chris was one of the uh, engineers at Basho back in the day. Yeah, okay. um, and he worked on, on CRDTs back then. Yeah, um, he's, uh, he's now a PhD student at CMU. And he, <clears throat> he actually started out like doing... Uh, like a programming language or programming models and stuff like this for CRDTs is like what he wanted to do. But uh, he since then has pivoted into like, you know, trying to deal with the issue of of failure and and identifying, you know, failures in distributed systems that are like completely just, you know, bugs between teams, like not, Hmm. uh, not like, you know, Zookeeper has a bug, but like 
I implemented a microservice uh, and it did not like consider, you know, this other guy's service being down. Right. <laughs> and then, you know, through some ca- cascade of, 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 be- of bull crap, like the whole service, like everything came down. Right. right. Cascading um, failure. So, <laughs> yeah. Right. And so um, this is sort of his, this whole, his whole thing. Um, wow. And uh, how, how do I get into like the basics of it without like, Going down a, a rabbit hole and boring you to death. Um, no, I like. Let's go down the rabbit hole. Yeah, we hole if you want. <laughs> a lot with failure. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, um, so, okay. This is kind of in the in the realm of of chaos engineering, but without having to do chaos engineering, because if huh. you think about doing chaos engineering, um, chaos engineering is rather expensive because it means that you have to stand up a whole like you know, <laughs> like replica of all of your services, you know, and then you have to have a team of people like you know, in a calculated way, shutting things down and then trying and then observing what happens and then trying yeah. to like backtrack, like what should have happened and which team is responsible, right? It's kind of like right, right. what people that's do. Not in, the in, mathy way to do it. Yeah, that's, that, yeah. that would well, be so, the... So we, 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 we do have Throwing things against the wall way of doing it. <laughs> so we, I'm not going to claim that this is like, you know, has like beautiful foundations in the way that like functional programming stuff does, but there is a nicer foundation to it. I, I think, um, and the idea is basically like, um, you know, we, so we, we look at services as, as like individual things that are like black boxes and we kind of know what their interfaces are. Um, and we, you, you know, usually they're always communicating, you know, uh, with protocol buffers over gRPC or HTTP. Right. Um, and if you just look at, you know, um, the possible responses that you could get from either of these, it's a finite space of possible responses. And you know all of the, the things that all the requests that a service can make and, you know, all the possible responses that it could get. Um, and, you know, you kind of d- build this this graph, you can dynamically build this graph, like the service graph to figure out, like, what are all the services? Uh, and um, you can kind of, you know, like build this giant state space of potential possibilities that your system can get into. Um, But, you know, what Chris has done is he's kind of figured out a clever way to prune the space down. Uh, And it turns out that there's actually not like a huge, like it's not an intractably large space of things that could go wrong. Um, So if you take like service topology and all the like possible states of uh, across a service topology, it seems like like the graph just explodes exponentially yeah. at some point, and you can't reason about the graph anymore. But what does it seem like? But you can. But you can because yeah, out. because we focus like on on sort of like the the interfaces between these things, and ulti- and on ultimately the um the responses that you get, like the HTTP responses that you get, right? Um, and so and and then usually, in, you know, since we've built the graph, we can trace back to exactly which service co- like triggered all of these things. Um, but you know, it means that we like, you know, it's like the number of services and the number of, um, you know, requests that they can make, uh, like, you know, and the, uh, the possible space of different like HTTP response codes, right. Which is, you know, you put all these things together, it's not that huge. And then in addition to that, um, you can, you can prune a whole bunch of these out, uh, because several of several, like if you, if you just kind of exhaustively generated all the possibilities, like, I don't know. Oh, okay. Depending on the topology, um, it can be like most of the the the, the things that you've generated uh, are kind of the same case, kind of repeated, but with just two little things out of order, right? But they're ultimately the same, so they kind of project down to the same scenario. I don't know if that makes sense, but that means you could prune it out, and so then you'd end up with a lot fewer, um, you know, like like potential messages that you might be receiving and handling. Um, I don't know right. if that makes sense, 
But the point here is that like we can prune down this ginormous space of like here are all the things that could possibly go wrong. Um, but we, you know, so we generate all these things that could possibly go wrong. We throw away a lot of them because they project down to the same sort of trace. Uh, and then we end up with this, usually the set of not very many traces. And we can run that through the entire code or that through the actual implementation code and then see what the implementation does. And we do this as CI. So you don't have to do it oh, nice. uh, yeah. with like a bunch of engineers, like in a big data center or whatever. Right. It makes me think of the distinction between pure functions and effectful functions. You say pure mm -hmm. functions, we know how they work. The effectful functions are the ones we'll focus on. Isolate, put the yeah. put the isolation. Right. Um, the the mental image that I have is that if you have like a three D structure that that you can hold, if you hold that up and cast a light on it you get a shadow of the structure and essentially that's what you're doing is you've got this like very complex topology but when you when you then project that into a 2d surface you're yeah. able to collapse collapse yes. a bunch of stuff down mm -hmm. that's yeah that's the right way to think about it and like in this case stuff would be like the potential like calls in, in like a graph of rpc calls or something right right, right. so it's like like call a and call b could happen in any order um, but the end result is still the same, right? And so therefore we don't have to try both of those scenarios. We can just try one of them um, because we can prove that they're the same thing. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's- So, so Chris's uh, project captures this like projected topology and then can can test at CI time that what's going to happen uh, in the given, in the different scenarios and see where things are, where cascading failure may happen and, right. and tell you about in CI. <laughs> It's tell you about NCI for, yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, and, and you can identify like which service might, might be causing it and which team is responsible for it. It doesn't, um, it doesn't. So to also to be clear and totally fair, like uh, I don't want to say that this is a complete replacement for chaos engineering, but um, what we did was we went through a bunch of chaos engineering talks and we've like recreated, the, you know, the issues that, that happened. And, um, you know, majority of them we can catch with this approach, but there are some which you can only catch with chaos engineering. So the point here is like, this could be much like a much cheaper first step, right? And then you, you catch a bunch of bugs this way, and then you go for chaos engineering to catch some of the more like Heisenberg issues or whatever that, that you might be looking for. Um, yeah. But the point is that like it could, ultimately it could save a whole bunch of money and time um, because, you know, we can all afford CI time. Uh, CI time is cheaper than engineering time. Well, and in chaos engineering, we're typically actually causing service disruptions intentionally. Whereas yeah. if we can, if we can take a lot of that and put it into CI, so that we don't have to actually cause service disruptions to find these issues, yeah, that's that's a good thing for our yeah, users. exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, so and that I mean that's the idea. You don't have because a lot of well, some companies the way that they do it, I guess, is that they have kind of like a canary uh deployment or whatever that they're doing all of a sudden they have some small number of users using it yeah. um and then you know they cause an outage or whatever and they just kind of like redirect everybody back to the you know the bigger deployment right <laughs> right like oh crap now we have to figure yeah. it out but, um, but some users but it's suffer it's like we're gonna we're gonna let some users have a terrible experience while while we you know we use them as the guinea pigs they're guinea pigs exactly yeah. and then but then in addition to that we, we didn't got, have to have actual whole, users be guinea pigs you got a whole bunch of machines doing stuff that they don't need to do right like you've kind of, of doubled the size of your yeah. anyway like this seems just very expensive if you can catch a lot of it at CI time, and they could um, be mining Bitcoin instead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's that's hard to detect. I have to say, but <laughs> but um, 
But the cool thing is that Chris uh, Chris is actually doing this. Um, I'm not allowed to say with with who, but with one one of these big, you know, trendy tech companies that uh, has a lot of microservices. Nice. Um, and 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 you know, this this company is finding it very useful. <laughs> yeah. So like he's tr- he's testing it out on their services, and and they're like, yeah, this is this is this seems good, you know. That's cool. um, but you know, he's, he's you, tried Matt. it in small small scenarios, like in you know, like in a handful of services. He's not tried it like on ten thousand services or something. Yeah. Um, but it's like it's not it's not he's trying it on real things it's not like just on some dumb some dummy like we invented some stupid scenario and we're going to claim that it works for everything because we're academics it's yeah. not like that <laughs> he's that he's doing it at a real at a real company that's one of the trendy ones that's cool yeah and with with so many of these problems it seems like going back to kind of where we started with serialization like serialization it's it's a problem like build tools where you look at it on the mm. surface and you're like this is a simple problem i can fix this in a weekend that's right exactly <laughs> and then you realize just how complex the space how is. much crap can, yeah yeah no and then yeah. also like uh you know and once you once you get in into the middle of it you know and you're like i got something that mostly works then you start discovering like all of the shortcuts and like ugly ugly stuff that the other frameworks yeah. and other things are doing like the way that they're like fudging things and you're just like damn, (laughs) this is, this is messy. Um, you know, and so seem like sometimes if, if you change your perspective or orientation or you, you know, move into a different solution space, you know, you apply a loss transform on it or something, then the problem drops out. It's, it's often. If you take a completely different approach, that's right. I mean, Mm -hmm. and I, I, I like to, I like to doubt what research is for, I, I mean, in some cases, research is like, you know, just speed this thing up using the same seven techniques that we've been using, but in different, different amounts, you know, <laughs> like sometimes that's research, but, uh, you know, I like to think of research as like kind of turning the problem sideways and then trying some totally out of left field approach and maybe it's going to work or maybe it's just going to be weird and wonky, you know, uh, but, you know, we've, 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 we've successfully made it work a few times <laughs> yeah. um, and then we have kind of a new way of doing things, whether it's good or bad. Um you know, and that's 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 the, the the one thing that's still cool about research. All of the drama with funding is not cool about research. That is eerie <laughs> uncool. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well and and it's cool that your your research at UPFL around scholar serialization stuff really I think opened a lot of um, doorways to doing the the serialization, constructing the serialization stuff pre runtime yeah. and where where I've been experiencing this a lot lately is with GraalVM native image and we talked about that on our last episode but uh, with GraalVM native image it does ahead of time compilation I don't know if you're familiar with it but it does ahead of, of course, time yeah. compilation uh, of JVM based applications and that is not reflection friendly because reflection is dynamic so it can't yep. be ahead of time compiled and so it's been interesting to see the existing serialization libraries all kind of really struggle through dealing with this yep. uh, because they're based on on reflection. Uh, even ones that that have um, very little reflection usually have reflection somewhere, yep. <laughs> and so yep. then it becomes tricky and, and difficult. And so, in working in the Scala world, where a lot of the JSON libraries now or serialization libraries now don't use reflection at all, they yeah, use macros. I'm like. Thank if you, if you use ADT is why we don't need reflection, right? Because you, you know, you, like we don't, as long as you don't have an ugly object graph, you're good. 
object ugly object graphs are the problem. That's why you need reflection because anybody can mutate this thing in any way. But if you're doing functional programming and you have kind of like a tree-like data structure that's not going to change, generate ahead of time. Who cares? It's going to be way better. And also like it's going to be predictable and faster at runtime. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, so I, I did this back in, I don't know, 2012 or something. And then obviously like, you know, there's, there's this does this doesn't work and this should be faster and this sucks. I'm like, then people make their own. I'm like, great, you know. Yeah. <laughs> happy, happy that you know that you found a better way. But no, you know. I think your work definitely the the research that you did and the work you did put us into a much better direction and allowed the community to be like, okay, no, this this is a better way and we can make this work. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's actually really interesting because like a lot of the 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 flack that, you know, when 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 the serialization library didn't work, it uh, it was because it had to fall back to reflection and it was using scholar reflection, uh, yeah. which is terrible. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it had, a, it, let's just say it's, it, it was terrible back in the day. It was, it was terrible only because, um, so Martin would always be like, don't use reflection, da, 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 you know, it's whatever. <laughs> but the, the point is that back then it was made like basically the reflection, like scholar reflection was basically like just exposing all the compiler internals. <laughs> and if you are fixing bugs in a compiler, that's terrible because if you change something subtle in the code, which causes like, I don't know, uh, the, the class files to be, you know, or, or the, the, you know, um, the source files to be compiled in a slightly different order or something. It means that something isn't yet compiled that you were like using the API to, and right. then now you're, now you're, now you're, now you're going to get it. Like nothing's going to work. It's all going to break and you're going to get just explosions of terrible, ugly. Yeah. Um, and that that's that's that happened a lot with the 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 first serialization library. It was because um, because you know there would be a compiler fix that would just cause everything else to break, and then it would you know ultimately <laughs> be the serialization library's fault because yeah. because it spits out all this ugly you can't figure it out. Yeah. Um, but this is also kind of one of the one of the things like you know one of the ways that we realized that the the approach to exposing all these compiler internals via like a reflection API, it's a bad decision. Yeah. Um, and then if you, if you notice, like that has been removed, that's no longer, I mean, it's <laughs> no longer three. exists. Right. But uh, there are a lot of libraries that, you know, and this is, I don't know if you remember macro paradise and all of that, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, people who built libraries on top of that, you know, uh, would start trying to reduce the, the area like using, reflection you know uh, yeah. and the fancy stuff because because little compiler fixes that like you know jason saug or seth or somebody would do yeah. that have nothing to do with something else would cause this cascading issue and then you know it would come out in some innocuous some library right that had nothing that has no idea anything about the compiler internals yeah an extreme example of coupling yes yeah yeah but, true. I mean, yeah. but this is part of the reason why so many so many serialization libraries popped up after so the you know because I was like ta da we had this really cool approach and it you know it worked for all of the things that we made it work for yeah um, but then you know some compiler bug would be fixed or something and then you know something that worked and that's like advertised to work would then appear not to work anymore yeah uh, and people like I can do this on the weekend you know <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> I can do something less shitty that works on the weekend and then they would do it and then. <laughs> Yeah. Now you have t 20 of these libraries and I'm just like, I, you know, I don't know what to do here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, well, now with Scala 3, um, 
I think we're starting to see how people are are using not going to macros for these solutions, but using the um, derivative type classes to yep. solve these problems, and, yep. and then that creates a much better isolation layer. Yep. But that, I would you want to explain GADTs to me? Uh, it's, it's like I've never been able to explain them clearly ever. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I would understand them I, at all, but. I, I feel like I understand them, but I can't articulate them to somebody else well enough. <laughs> the curse like, of the GADE. Yeah. Um, the curse of the monad, but. But I mean, uh, it's one of those things where it's like, they're so hard to explain. And then you start trying to explain it. And then you like talk for 10 minutes and then nobody understood what the hell you just said. You know what I mean? And <laughs> so I feel like, <laughs> so I don't, <laughs> so I'm going to say no. <laughs> I guess that's good. Because no, I have I, not I, mastered I, this explanation. The, um, I guess the TLDR is that there is a mathematical construct behind type class derivation, which yes. gives us a better way to do metaprogramming. Um, or to what, do, what to feels like stories. metaprogramming, I guess, you know, like something at compile time, like, cause that, that, you know, that's the similarity here is that all the type class derivation stuff is manipulation that you are doing at compile time. And, you know, macros are manipulation that you're doing at compile time, but it's like, yeah. manipulating like the actual compiler code right versus yeah. uh you know doing something nice with abstractions in the case of the type level stuff yeah and and ultimately back to the serialization is that this is this is getting us to a place where we don't have to use reflection we can instead do full compile time serializers and and uh, right. uh so it's cool stuff <laughs> and, this, and the stuff that I did was based on on macros, uh, yeah. you know. And this is, you know, widely accepted to be not not the right way to do these things <laughs> nowadays. Yeah, and, well, and, and I mean, if you were starting today, you would probably be using Scala three type cluster. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But I'm just saying, like, even Scala two, like, you know, it's been it's been accepted for a long time now that probably not don't do it that way. Um, mostly because of of the fact that you have this window into the compiler, and that stuff is all changing, and you have no idea what's going to change. Yes. Uh, I think Josh Surrett had taken your some of your pickling stuff and done protobuf support on top of it from memory. Oh, probably. I, I know he was messing with it at one point. Yeah. I mean, you can. Uh, you can kind of write your, like, create your own IDL for it. And I, I mean, by create your own, you can just, you know, create a protobuf yeah. you know, <laughs> IDL, right? Um, that was another oh. sort of thing was trying to make sure that it would remain extensible. Right. Um, so yeah. That you're not, like, locked different, into... different serialization formats. You could do JSON, you could do, and then I think Josh added yeah. the buff and, and I don't know if you did XML or whatever. Um, we always said that one could do XML, but then nobody <laughs> actually did. You know, right. I mean, we showed you how to do JSON and we showed you how to do binary, and then we're like, okay, and one could do XML because yeah. I don't want to continue to encourage XML. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. I yeah, and then, and then always the new hotness. Always the new hotness. Yes. Yeah, it's gonna be everything. Yeah, everything. Solve oh all God. the problems. Uh, one of the things I was thinking about with serialization to to dwell on that a little longer was, and one of the challenging problems to it is that that when, I think oftentimes when we look at serialization, we're just thinking about one problem uh, space. So maybe we need to optimize for uh, over the wire. Um, like not taking a lot of space over the wire or something like that. Or maybe we need to optimize for uh, ser deserialization efficiency, or maybe we need to optimize for um, being able to be 
compatible across multiple different platforms and languages or whatever. Conversions. Yeah. Uh, or maybe we need to optimize for maintaining a really rich um, representation of the data or something like that. And so it's, it's one of those things where it's like, usually when we think about serialization, I just think about, here's my problem that I'm trying to solve with serialization, but we don't think about how the problem space is actually gigantic. And And also everybody comes in out of like left and right field with completely different needs and concerns. Right. So, uh, you know, in my, so, so we actually, so this is something that I think people don't remember, don't realize about the whole serialization stuff that we did back in the day. Um, It was intended to be flexible. Like it was intended to let you like, if you wanted to override it and, you you know, like focus on only like a compact representation because you wanted it to be, uh, you know, you wanted to reduce network overhead, right? Um, but you didn't care about CPU. So like it could take a long time to reconstruct the object if you want. But like, you know, as long as it's as compact as possible, um, you know, we we gave you, so, you know, I would like, I used to ramble, oh, it's extensible, it's extensible, blah, 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 blah. But this is what I meant when I was saying that stuff. Um, and so we showed, we let you control both the representation and then how the representation is constructed. Um, and we kind of gave you like an API for how we like represented objects and, uh, you know, you could, you could override the way that we did it. So we had, um, a binary serialization like thing where we would, you know, take the schema or whatever, and we had our own way of encoding it in binary. And like these two things were like, like separate extensible APIs. So you could change the representation or you could change like how you convert the fields and things like this into that format. Um, and so, you know, uh, we basically just con- like compared and contrasted uh, JSON versus like this binary format where the binary format, the goal was to be um, as, as fast and compact as we were like jointly optimizing those two things. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, and then obviously for JSON. one was- API that allows you to achieve whatever your needs are around serialization. I'm sure that that's, that's a. That was hard- extremely ridiculously hard. And, and I think, you know, like nobody. Nobody like like thought about that. I, I kept them being like, it's extensible, it's extensible. And everyone's like, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, <laughs> but it's at run time. It's at, it's generated at compile time. It's so fast. You yeah. know, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, that too. <laughs> you know, um, but uh, you well, know, that was like, like throw things. your own types into it. Um, yeah, which which is another hard problem of serialization. Is like, okay, mm-hmm. what do you do about the types that are not the primitive types that are user defined yeah. types? And how do you? Yeah, exactly. How do you, how do you decode those? But, and decode those and, yeah, but. Um, but this is, this is, I guess, like, you know, if I have like, uh, like a style for doing things, it's like taking the PL stuff to the system stuff, like using, like doing, doing PL things to, you know, cause in PL land, we like general generality and reusability and extensibility. And, you huh. know, it's like, we like these things, um, we value them. Uh, but in systems land, it's just like, how do we do as little work? as possible so we're going to build a special specialized system to only do uh binary whatever from python to something else and we will make it the fastest right and so i'm like no let's let's have all of those things but in one system that's you know flexible and blah 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 blah. and so and i mean i you could say that that's exactly kind of the same style of of like how we're doing the composability work right we're like let's use the nice pl composition stuff but like compose the systems properties that usually you build a brand new system for each time. <laughs> Let's not right. build a brand new system. Let's just make these things composable so you can put little pieces together and, and have a new system like without building it all from scratch. I guess functional programming has given me a, a 
perspective on this that now I'm annoyed by systems that don't value composability is like a first class, you know, key yeah. thing. Like or just like being able to reuse things and you know, extend them slightly or whatever. Like Kubernetes. Yeah. I yes. I mean there's a lot of great things about Kubernetes. But the yes. fact that there is like no composability model, like just just like hurts me in my soul. Like <laughs> like I really want like to be able to like compose these these CRDTs together. You know, like yeah, and the yeah. fact that 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 isn't part of the design. I, I think is just fundamentally wrong, but I'm thankful that there are people like you that are doing research into how do we bring the, that composability, the PL design stuff to things larger than just languages, to systems and distributed systems. And so it's, it's really, I have to, I have to say it's really an uphill battle where like we submit our papers to systems conferences and people are like, what the hell, you know, <laughs> generality is a dirty word because it means slow. Right. Uh -huh. Um, and so there's really still, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm trying, you know, the group, the people in my research group, group are trying, it's called people out there trying to do this stuff and like make things, you know, whatever. I'm just going to use the word composable as a blanket term for all yeah. the stuff that we're talking about. Um, but you know, there's really like, like a, a clash of different cultures. So the people who are building systems, I mean, it doesn't have to be academic people. It's, you know, people who are building systems in, in the real world, right? Like both yeah. of those groups of people, um, are very allergic to this notion of like generality and flexibility and blah, 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 because that's typically seen as, you know, something that's going to distract from the bottom line. And, you know, it's not going to be the specialized fast thing that we wanted. And I'm like, uh, why do you hate math so much? It's so I, good. This is a culture clash. And I don't, I, you know, and so me and, so it's funny because me and Chris have had it. So uh, this paper describing this fault injection stuff, that's, you know, like don't do chaos engineering all the time, do this stuff and then do chaos engineering this paper. Um, it was, he just presented it like two weeks ago at the symposium on cloud computing. So SOCC. Huh. Um, so there's a paper, it's available, blah, 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 blah. If anybody wants to look at this stuff, that's accessible. I would say read that because you can read that paper. Oh, cool. Math papers are hard to read. So don't read the math papers, <laughs> but um, you know, like we, that paper took probably, I don't know, like we submitted it like three or four times uh, and before it finally got in anywhere, because we because of this this like culture clash, right? Where we're uh, where we would use words like oh, you know, composable or like general, you yeah. know, and then that would immediately trigger everybody be like, this this is impractical. You know? it's like, <laughs> well, but we're running, but we're doing it on some company's thing. Like it's not impractical, you know. The shift to functional programming is a fundamental mental sea change yeah yeah no it certainly is yeah it certainly is i don't i don't i will not argue that but this it's just there's this other problem right which is the cultural problem right like there mm -hmm. is this mental change that nobody wants to undertake you know how do you show them but like because right now i'm just dealing with the knee jerks like we haven't even been able to like show an example all the way through to people that are like, Oh, this isn't so bad. You know, it's just like, Oh my God, generality. No. You know? Well, and sometimes it takes those, those higher level abstractions being built on that foundation for yeah. people to understand 
to uh, to be able to relate to it yeah. because like like I I totally love the concept the concept of CRDTs but I don't personally want to build stuff directly like with CRDTs I I want to build stuff that is built on top of CRDTs right. but you don't want to do as a mediocre developer CRDTs are too hardcore for me you know well, yeah, <laughs> so. but you don't but the point is you shouldn't that you should not have to understand a damn thing about them right it's, it's kind of like our argument it, they they do all kinds of hard crap under the under the under the hood. Like, can we right. just keep that hard crap away from you so that you can just like reason about putting them together? Have like, that solid works? foundation there, yeah, and, and the mathematic algebraically. Well, <laughs> yeah, that functional programming principle of okay, we're gonna do the hard stuff once, and then you're just gonna use this yeah. tool, yeah. yeah, exactly, and know yeah. that it's gonna work and it's gonna compose. Right. Yeah. I wish yeah. that like this could be seen by many people <laughs> who build some of the systems that we yeah. <laughs> that we use, <laughs> you know, because it's yeah there's not enough of this like you know willingness to accept these different foundations yeah well and i guess one of the things that functional programming has done to me is it's made me really significantly value having this foundation mm. whereas before functional programming i was unaware of why i would need that foundation and what value it would bring me years ago i saw something about people who were going to try and make programs provably correct using math and i just thought well that's ridiculous that that's <laughs> impossible why would you even try and do that huh. um, and it's taken a long time for me to go oh i see how yeah <laughs> see how that's yeah, at least partially possible, and partially valuable, or, and and, and super valuable, super valuable. Yeah, oh yeah. yeah, yeah. But everything starts out that way, where you're like, "That's crazy," you know. <laughs> yeah, and an internet like, that's on all works. the time in your house, <laughs> nah, crazy. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, uh, Heather, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and knowledge and experience with us. Super fun to learn from you. And hopefully I get to see you in person sometime at a conference. Oh, yeah, that would be nice. It's like I don't remember conferences anymore. It's like it's so bad for my – so Matthew, who uh, is the guy working on the CRDT stuff, is like awesome and delightful. And he's, you know, appeared to do his PhD and did all of this work like during this pandemic. (laughs) <laughs> poor guy has like done all this stuff yeah, and he's yeah. like he went to strange loop which was like i mean and he presented at strange loop first, last first talk of the day at, yeah. at a very slim down strange loop you know what i mean and i'm just like i swear yeah. it's better than this man i swear it's better than this right so uh, it's we'll like i feel bad day. for for them right because they're just coming up and they don't they haven't been able to experience they haven't been able to meet was. anybody or do any of the excitement that you know you you have when you sit down with some people and like sit in a hotel um, lobby till 2 a.m talking about yeah. crdts and we're like working through something on you know the yeah. back of a note notepad or whatever yeah like he hasn't had to experience those things and i i, I look forward to experiencing those things again but yes. i i want him to i want the, the those those folks that are just coming up to experience those things because this pandemic has been going on long enough man yeah. I want it to be over. <laughs> oh, yes, we all do. Well, thank you so much, Heather. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate all it. Right.